All right, so I got to stay close to that. All right. That may or may not happen. I tend to roam a little bit, but this is a small room, so um, it's so good to be here uh, in Portland, Maine. This weekend has been uh, the first time I've ever been anywhere in New England other than the Boston area. Um, so, and even that was just a really small little area I was in in Boston. So. Uh, it's really cool to be here, good to be here. I, I enjoy being with a group this size. My wife and I, we were converted in Milwaukee, but then we led a church in the Fox Valley up by Green Bay that was about this size for five years. Uh, we were there, and so it feels really uh, kind of comfortable and natural to be back here. Um, Twin Cities, the church is a little bigger, uh, but I you know, I like groups this size, so it's good to, good to be with you. Um, and I'm, I'm, it's been my privilege to be here all weekend and get to know uh, so many of you. Um, we're going to talk, uh, let me show you a picture of my family here because they couldn't make it. Am I okay? I don't need that mic. Do I? You can hear me? All right. Um, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, that's my family. Um, my wife, my Cresha, on the end next to her is our nephew, Javen. Who, this picture is about a year and a half ago, but he's 18 now. Um, and we've been raising him since he was about 13. And then in the middle is our son, Paviel. He's 23. And then on the end next to me is the baby of the family. Um, he was, uh, yeah, and he's actually quite a bit taller than he was there. Um, so he's, uh, he just turned 16. Um, and so he's, uh, he's doing his thing and, um, uh, Yes, I'll just head it off. Yeah, he plays basketball. So, um, so that's, that's his deal. So um, it's good to be here. Um, I want to start out this morning, though, and ask you guys a couple questions. So I know that's tough sometimes on a Sunday morning. You're just waking up and you're like, we don't want questions, but I'm going to give you a couple questions. And I don't think the first one is too awfully difficult. Okay? You, you with me? Yeah. Can we do this? All right. So, what is the shape of a piece of paper? Mm. Rectangle. Very good. Rectangle. All right. Now, the next question is a little harder. And I'm, I'm going to move over here and you'll see why in a minute. What is the shape of a stop sign? Oh, What's the shape of a stop sign? Octagon. One, okay, another one. They get harder as we go. Okay. What is the shape of a basketball? Yeah. Ooh, this is in New England. This is an educated group, right? Nobody even said circle. You were going to say circle. I would accept circle because I was not a math major. So I'll take right. One last one. You ready? What is the shape of Liquid. Ah, yeah, that's a tougher one, isn't it? One of the definitions of liquid is it is a substance that has no shape of its own. It needs a container to have a shape. It takes the shape of whatever container it's in. Right? So right now, there's liquid in here. It's the shape of this bottle. If I were to pour it in a bowl, it would take the shape of that bowl. That's the nature 
of liquid. If you take a solid and try to jam it into something this shape, you're either going, it's not going to fit, or you're going to damage the container or the substance itself. It won't fit into a pre-made container. And so that's a simple illustration, right? But that's the nature of liquid. And I want to talk to us this morning about using that picture, that metaphor, and us as Christians being liquid. And if we are liquid in that analogy, then what is our container? What do you think? What is our container? Christ! Right? It's hard to go wrong with the answer Jesus. It's like, it's like the kid in Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher says, hey, what's brown and furry and climbs in trees and has a long tail? And the kid says, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer must be Jesus. <laughs> so you, you can't go wrong. Yes. I want to talk to us today about the idea of Christ being our container, being a preformed shape to which we then adhere to. We don't get to come in and say, here's how I'm going to live as a Christian. Here's how I'm, what I'm going to do. And here's how I want my life to go. And here's the type of person I'm going to be. When we submit to Christ, that's already determined for us. And our job is to take that shape. And then we're going to talk about kind of what that shape is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So imagine you were driving down the road. Um, I haven't seen any, but you, you do have billboards in Maine, right? No. Not, no. Are you kidding me? Got him out. All right. So imagine you're in another state. Like, let's say you were really lucky and you got to go to God's country, and so you're driving through Wisconsin. And you see a billboard, and it says, By nature, we yearn and hunger for blank. And once we've glimpsed some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. Now, how would our society as a whole tend to fill in that blank? What kind of words would we put in? Like, we, man, we, we yearn for this, we hunger for it, and once we get even a taste of it, we'll do anything to get more. What are the type of words we would put in there? Money. Power. Power. Happiness. Success. Right? It's, it's kind of interesting. I've actually asked this question around the world, and you know what words they fill in in like Africa and other places in the world? <coughs> Same exact words. <laughs> Same sorts of things. Money, power, success, happiness, maybe love, you know, you throw a few in there. But it's, it's all sort of the same general nature. These are the things that we go after, that we want, that we desire, that we fill our life up with. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but I want to go to this story in Acts chapter 16. Okay? And you have Paul and Silas are traveling around, sharing the gospel, preaching the word about Jesus, showing people how to follow Jesus, and they come to Philippi. And Luke, who's writing out Acts, does something a little bit odd, a little bit strange in this passage in Acts 16. And he draws attention a couple of different times to the idea that, that Philippi is a Roman colony. Now Luke doesn't waste words, so there's some specific reason why he's doing that. What's odd about that is 
all of the colonies that they're going to are Roman colonies, right? I mean, it would be a little like if somebody, you know, if I went back and said, I was in Portland, Maine last weekend, an American city, be like, yeah, okay, you know, and I, I traveled to Boston and I went to Bangalore, and then I went to Portland, an American city. They're all American, right? They're all Roman colonies, so why should go? Because this is the only time he does it with Philippi. Well, Philippi was a, it was a, a Roman colony, of course, but it was founded in the previous century by, uh, or previous years, by uh, former Roman soldiers. When you were in the Roman army, uh, most of the soldiers did not have their citizenship, but they could earn citizenship by putting in years in the army. And so they would be granted citizenship. And then once they would retire, if you're Caesar, you don't want a bunch of soldiers, retired soldiers, milling around Rome with nothing to do, because that's how, you know, like coups and rebellions start. So they would give them their citizenship and send them off into sort of far-flung areas of the empire and say, go show the people out there how to live Roman. Here's your citizenship. Go show them what it looks like to live the Roman life and Roman culture. And that's incidentally, you know, in, in, in uh, Philippians 3, when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, that's the idea he's appealing to. He's not talking about wait to go to heaven one day. He's saying go out in the world and show people what it looks like to be from this place, to live by these values. And so they send them out. And so Philippi is a very Roman city. It's proud of its Romanness. It embraced Roman culture to the extreme. And it was, in some ways, you could argue, maybe the most Roman city anywhere except Rome, and maybe even more than Rome, because they were so like into the idea of being Rome and Roman culture. And so Paul and Silas come here, and they start preaching the gospel, and it immediately faces a, you know, pushback. And there's conflict. Now, they, Paul was used to that. But in Philippi, it's even ratcheted up a degree or two. And basically, a riot starts. And they, they drive Paul and Silas before the community and the leaders. And they start screaming. And they say, these men are Jews. And they're throwing our city into an uproar. They're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But that's what they're claiming. So the question is, what gospel is Paul proclaiming here? And why is it so offensive to the culture of the Romans? Why was their gospel so countercultural? And then maybe another question that flows from that is, why is ours so often not? Offensive and countercultural. Because I don't see a lot of riots. Right? Well, maybe we could say, you know what, maybe the answer is it's just a different culture. Rome was a different sort of people, they had different values than the people do nowadays, and so that's why it was offensive and and caused such problems and it doesn't today. So they're screaming, they're yelling, and then the story goes on and they actually throw them in jail. And we find out, now there's more that goes on that night. We're going to kind of go over that. But we're going to, 
we're going to go to the next morning. That night in jail, they were beaten severely. This was no minor, you know, spank. This was a severe flogging. And then they're released. And on the way out, Paul says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they beat us without a trial. This is a huge problem. This has turned the tables on the leaders of Philippi because they can actually be put to death for flogging a Roman citizen without a trial. So this is important stuff here. I don't know if this ever occurred to you, but here's my question. Why does Paul wait (laughs) until after he's beaten to share that information? Because I'm not forgetting that. Right? First whip. Yeah. I mean, they pull out the they pull the whip out before they hit, and I'm like, oh, by the way, I I got papers, Roman citizen. And there are other times in Paul's life where he, where he will say that right away. He'll be like, oh, I'm a citizen. You can't mess with me. Yeah. But here, he didn't forget. He didn't have, you know, like a groggy night. Just, oh, if only I would have remembered that. <laughs> so why does he wait? What is Paul up to here in Philippi? When you really slow down and read the story, it's like there's strange things going on in this account. And the Bible writers do that, you know. Sometimes we think we can approach the Bible like, oh, everything should just be spoon-fed to man, laid out. And they actually expect that you're going to be engaged, intelligent, digging readers who can follow little clues and hyperlinks, and that you're going to dig in and do the work. Mm-hmm. And so there's these subtle little things that they expect you'll stop and go, why that? Mm-hmm. Why did he do that? Why did he ask that question? Why didn't he do this? What, that phrase sounds like something I've read somewhere else, and you're supposed to follow these hyperlinks. Mm-hmm. So why does he wait? Let's leave that question out in the air for a moment, all right? We'll come back to that. Because I want to tell you just a little bit about the Roman world. Um, I think it's helpful in this passage, and... Before I go, before I went into full-time ministry, I, I was a high school history teacher, and so I feel it my duty to force you to learn a little bit of history, history. every now and then. Okay. Please. So in the Roman world, you, you have split between elites and okay. non-elites. About two to three percent of the world was elite, and about ninety-seven to ninety-eight percent of the world was non-elite. So let's see how different the Roman world was from our world today, right? So you had just a small class of people that were rich, they were powerful, they were well-known, and then everybody else. And, oh, that didn't come through. That's okay. Um, so I want you to imagine that there's some other writing there. But the, the elites were split into decurions, centurions, and equestrians. And so you had these levels of society, and at each level, you did your best to sort of advance to the next, you, you know, if you could, there wasn't a lot of mobility, but it was it was very structured. And one thing that you didn't do, they had a problem in Rome with, with identity theft, but not the way we would have it today. It was pretending to be a class higher than you were, and that was actually a crime punishable by death. 
because the whole society was sort of structured and built on these hierarchies, right? And so you did everything you could to get ahead, to be praised by the people lower than you. And they called that honor. That's what you wanted. You wanted to have this level of honor from other people. You wanted them to know how important you were, how great you were, the things you had done. And the non-elites, rather than bucking against that system and going, why are we all supporting and feeding into this system? They went along with it and actually mimicked it. And they had slaves, free men, and free born. <coughs> And so they had these hierarchies too, and they wanted to get ahead, and they wanted to be like the, the rich and the famous and those sorts of things. And so it was, it was valued in Rome. Like, we, we take a value like humility, and we think that's a good value, right? Romans were like, let's just call it what it is. That's weakness, okay? Why would I be humble? I want you to know how great I am. And in fact, I want you to know how great I am so that you can tell me how great I am. And in Rome, in the first century, if you were coming to hear a speaker speak, you would expect, in a situation like this, you would expect that I would spend the first 10 minutes telling you about all the things I've done, all the places I've been, all the accomplishments I've had, how great I am, so that you could be properly impressed and then go out and tell other people, you know, I heard this speaker today, and so I got a little bit of swag and honor from that, right? And so you would expect a speaker to spend 10 minutes and tell you all about himself. I think we have 10 minutes here. Um, if I did that today, though, you'd be like, well, that's arrogant, right? But they expected it. And people did whatever they could. They grasped, they took advantage of every situation so that they would, you know, raise up their status in the eyes of other people. That's how it was. In fact, they would spend their whole lives amassing titles and jobs just so that they could put them on their gravestones. So that people would be impressed. Can you imagine a culture spending their whole lives chasing after something that was meaningless the minute they died? That's so weird, isn't it? Now that quote I showed you earlier was actually from a Roman author named Cicero. And he was speaking of the Romans, and he said, By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we've glimpsed some part of its radiance there, nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. Notice he says, by nature. He assumes this is just the way humans are. You want to be praised by other people. They, they didn't even have, like, where their cities would build streets or bridges or things. The rich folks did that so that they could do it and then put their name on it so everybody would go, oh, how great they are, right? This was society. So, you, you, humility, weakness. You wanted to exalt yourself. Freedom was the greatest thing because, in fact, the higher up the level you were, the more free you were because you didn't have anybody telling you what to do. The lower in status you were, the more obedient you had to be, the more people you had above you. So obedience was kind of considered a bad thing too. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is the world. This is a picture of one of those gravestones. They would spend their whole life. And this is a guy named Lucius Sabinus. He was the decurion. He was the suitor and the optio. He was in charge of witnesses by Annius Verus and on and on and on. Spent their whole life just to get this. 
And they would actually bribe people to get more and more titles. Historian Garrett Fagan says the Romans lionized strength over, vic- over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. That's the world in which they lived. That was their culture. Now, culture is a powerful force, right? We talked about it some this weekend. Culture determines so much of what we do in life, and it, it, more than you think, from how you sleep, where you sleep, how you interact with people, how you talk to them, how you carry out life is really determined by the culture in which you raised it. And one of the things is when we buy into certain cultural basic ideas, we can very easily conflict and have conflict with other cultures, right? A few years back, um, or not that long ago, but I took my sons uh, and uh, our nephew, so the three of them, and then a, a friend of my youngest son, uh, and we went to the movies. And we got to the theater, and we sat in the back row, and we were waiting for the movie to start. And the boys started chatting with each other and talking and sort of, you know, low talking, whispering, but not really, you know, and that kind of thing. And so I was just sitting there, and I could, I could hear what they were saying. I knew it was coming. And so pretty soon, my oldest son is sitting next to me, leans over and he goes, Dad, can we get some popcorn? <laughs> now, if you're a parent, you know they're not asking for popcorn because they want, like, to know if they have the ability to go get popcorn or permission. They're asking, can they get popcorn? Why? Money. They want money, right? So I'm like, yeah, all right. So I pulled out money and I gave it to my oldest son, who takes it and then looks at me, this child who I've raised from birth, who I've provided for and loved and given a home and done things for his entire life. Looks at me and says, Why do I gotta go get it? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him like I think any good dad would do, and I said, Because I'm paying for it. <laughs> he then took it and turned to his younger brother <laughs> and said, Dude, go get, go get the popcorn. Elijah says, Why do I gotta get it? And he goes, because I drove us here in my car, which was true. Elijah takes the money, looks at it, and I'm watching all this, turns to his nephew, uh, my nephew, his cousin, Javen, who is, if you saw that picture, is three years older than Elijah, but much smaller. He turns to Javen and he says, go get the popcorn. Javen goes, why do I got to get it? Elijah goes, because I'm bigger than you and I can beat you up. <laughs> Javen takes it and turns to Evanston on the end and goes, Evanston, go get the popcorn. Evanston goes, why do I have to get it? And he goes, because you're the youngest and you're on the end. <laughs> Evanston looked at the money and he went, okay. <laughs> and he went and got popcorn for everybody. Now, what you see there is a little snippet. See, there's a lot of different strains of culture, right? What you see there's a little snippet of male culture. Yes. Men tend to be, not always, but tend to be competitive. And we're, we can make anything a competition. What you saw there was a series of competitive negotiations. And each guy down the way lost. And in fact, when my son turned to his cousin and said, I'm bigger than you and I can beat you up, we were all kind of like, yeah, that's a pretty good one. 
That's well played. Now, I do got to tell you that uh, my nephew Javen has heard that story, and he would like people to know that he feels that that is no longer the case. That he could take Elijah if he had to. So, uh, high school wrestling in there, you know. And so he's. Uh, but that's that's male culture. Now, imagine a group of ladies go to the movie. Oh, yeah. I'll be curious. <laughs> so they sit down, and one of them goes, "We should get some popcorn." And another one goes, "You know what? I'll go get it." And another one goes, "No, you got it last time. I'll go get it." And another one goes. You were working all day. Your feet must be killing you. I'm going to go there. And one finally goes, you know what? Let's all go together. And they go. And they shout in the bathroom. And they all go to the bathroom. Because, sir, sort of the female culture tends to be cooperative, right? In nature. So these were cooperative negotiations. That works fine until you get a group of men and a group of women together in a mixed group and they go to a movie and somebody says, we should get popcorn and some guy goes, well, I'm not getting it because I drove us here. And every woman in the row looks down and thinks, what a jerk. And that poor guy has no idea what just hit him. Like it worked last week. I don't <laughs> because that's a culture clash, right? When cultures clash, it's powerful. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it causes wars. Sometimes it causes a man preaching the gospel to be thrown in jail and beaten because what he's saying is so in conflict with the culture that the people around go, he's got to be shut up or he will bring this system down. Mm. Can you imagine preaching a gospel that's so countercultural that people are like, he must be shut up now because he's going to bring this down. And we look at the Romans and go, well, maybe they were way different from us. And in some aspects they were, but as you describe it, you start to go, maybe they're not all that different from us at the core. Right? So for a minute, I want you to imagine everything I just said about Philippi and Roman culture. And I want you to embrace that as though you are Philippians in the first century. So you value, you'll take advantage of every opportunity to get ahead. You value that. You think that's a good thing. You want honor and status and praise from other people. You want the people lower than you to look up to you. Everything is built on that. That's your assumption of what's normal. Right? And then you become Christians. And as you guys have experienced here in Portland, Maine, the minute you become a Christian, everything you've ever learned in the culture around you that's unbiblical, it just melts away instantly. And you take on the mind of Christ wow. in an instant, right? <laughs> Maybe that's just Wisconsin, that's how it is. Not at all. You continue to have to make an effort to not be conformed and transform and and move away from the patterns of the world, right? But but so you're Philippians and that's the world that you've come from and think is normal. And then you get this letter. 
from Paul. And it says, all right, if you're united with Christ, here's what I want you to do. In other words, what Paul is going to say is, I'm going to call you to be liquid. I'm going to call you to a different shape. Now start in verse 3 and think about this. You're Philippians, right? And you read this letter and someone's reading it out loud to you for the first time and it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I mean, this is like telling an American, don't worry about money. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's life. See, these, we, we read that as though those are bad things he's just reminding them of. Those are good things to them. Rather, in humility, oh. <laughs> value others above yourselves. Are you insane? And it gets worse. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others? Threw up a little in my mouth. (laughs) Think how hard that, how countercultural that is. So, in essence, he says, I'm calling you to be liquid. And then in verse 5, he says, and now I'm going to show you your container. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now look what he says about Jesus. Who being in very nature God. Forget senators, you know, equestrians, decurions, all that. Forget that. This guy was God. In his very nature, he's the highest imaginable. Forget Caesar. He's higher than that. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The Roman culture was everything. You used everything to your advantage to get ahead. He had the ultimate trump card and he didn't use it. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a slave. As I said, people would, there was a crime problem of people pretending to be of a higher status, but nobody would pretend to be lower. That was insane, let alone the lowest level. A slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Do you see how every word in this passage is dripping with countercultural anti-Roman rhetoric? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, just to get the full effect of that, uh, Cicero, our Roman author from earlier, said to put a Roman citizen in, ch- citizen in chains is wrong. To flog him is a crime. To execute him is like killing your parent. And what shall I call a crucifixion? So abominable a deed can find no word adequate enough to describe it. Good Romans would not even say the words cross or crucifixion in public. Because it was considered that crass. The thing about the cross is when we meditate on the cross and think about it, we often think about the physical pain, but the real power of the cross was the shame of it in the first century. It stripped you of everything you had. You had no rights. You had no honor. You had no status. Rome is in control. Rome is in control of your life to the point where we can strip you naked, put you in front of other people, and often we picture like the cross being way up high, 
but most historians tell us, no, the typical Roman cross, the feet of the person would have been about six inches off the ground. See, that way you could walk by and look them in the face and spit on them and mock them, and they were right there. Shame. Nothing. Paul says that's the shape of your container. He did that. He sacrificed. He gave up his status, his rights, his everything for your benefit. For the benefit of others. That's, that's entry level. That's not like advanced. That's not the PhD of Christianity. That's the basic shape of our container. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because it can't. See, if it's just the cross that takes place, then Rome is in charge. Rome is powerful. Those things do matter. But he says, and he's, he's referencing and sort of alluding to the resurrection here. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Anywhere you can imagine. He is the highest name. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. This is the power of God in the world. This is how it works. You don't need to try to get ahead. You don't need to try to be successful. You don't need to try to step on other people. You don't need the praise and honor and looks and exaltation of other people. There is no power in that. It is empty. The power, the shape of the container is to lay down our lives for others, is to sacrifice in big and little ways, intentionally and purposely, to help other people. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Back to Paul. Acts 16. Why did Paul wait to say that he was a Roman citizen? He's in Philippi. His gospel has been deemed as so countercultural that he must be shut up. This will tear everything out if people listen to this. Especially if the poor people listen to this and they start getting in their heads that they don't need to praise us. Because you, you look at and on the surface level, you go, how could this be bad to go preach a gospel of sacrificing for the benefit of others and loving other people and putting them first? How could that be bad? Well, it tears everything down. Mm-hmm. What would think of all the industries in the United States? that would be torn asunder overnight if we decided we didn't need to exalt famous people and go watch them pretend to be other people and pay for it. (laughs) Right? Just that little decision right there. The infrastructure would fall. People, if you really start preaching that from pulpits, the pushback from Hollywood would be immense immediately. So why does Paul wait? Well, imagine, imagine a scenario in which I'm Paul, and I've come to you, and you're Philippians. I'm preaching this strange-sounding new gospel about living, you know, a whole different upside-down sort of way of living, countercultural. And then the pressure starts to come on this, this movement. And I'm standing there as Paul, and I go, listen, follow Jesus. He's the risen king. Sacrifice for the benefit of others. 
Um, you know, don't quit. And I'm a Roman citizen. Now, first of all, what's going to happen? The, the heat's now going to come on these new Christians. Because Paul can get out of it. They can't. But what are they going to think of Paul? Yeah. Who's a hypocrite? Power does matter. Citizenship does matter. Status does matter. So Paul says, in essence, to a church that knows he's a Roman citizen, I'm going to lay down my status. I'm not going to take advantage of it. Go ahead and be. That's powerless. The power, in a strange sort of way, is taking the beating. Taking the cross so that others can benefit. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then here's a question. Why say anything at all? Mm-hmm. Why say he's a Roman citizen at all? Because they had to know. Just like, and in and, and the uh, original slide, there's a parallel over here with um, Jesus that we see in Philippians 2. But just as Jesus refused to exploit his status as God, Paul refused to exploit his Roman citizenship. We see echoes of Philippians 2 and Rome 16. Just as Jesus willingly suffered, so did Paul. But just as Jesus was vindicated by a reversal of status, he's the name that is above every name, Paul had to stop and say, by the way, I am a Roman citizen. I didn't have to take that beating. Rome was not in charge. They were never in charge. That's never been the real power in the world. Status and muscles and strength and bombs and armies. That's never been the real power. You know where the real power is? In me pocketing my Roman citizenship and taking a beating for your benefit so that you can see that there's a different way of life available. Amen. He reversed everything by saying, I'm a Roman citizen. And I believe when they got that letter years later and started to read it, it probably actually wasn't as shocking as I said, because they read it and they went, oh yeah, we've seen this. We've seen Jesus. But they never met Jesus. But how had they seen him? Through Paul. How will a world separated by half a globe in 2,000 years ever see Jesus as we become liquid to the container? That's how you you see the container. When we're liquid, people will see the container. When we're not, they won't. What would it look like if we could say by nature we yearn and hunger for a cross-shaped life? And once we've glimpsed it, we'll do anything in order to secure it. That's not natural for us. Right? I don't think any of us wake up and go, how can I sacrifice for others today? I'm so excited to get up and run myself through the mill of suffering and self-denial. It's not natural. In 1 Peter 4, and we're almost done here. 1 Peter 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. 
Now, just to give you a picture here, in the, in the early centuries of Christianity, they often pictured the Christian life as a life of two paths, right? And so they didn't so much view it as like, oh, if you're, if you're a Christian and you make a mistake, you've blown it, and now you're a hypocrite, and you're a failure, and all that. That's not how they saw it. They described it as two paths. Which path are you going down? And you will stumble on paths, but as long as you're going down that path, that's the thing. There's the path of the way of Christ, and there's a path of evil self-desires. I'm going to do my own will, I'm going to do my own way, or I'm going to lay that down. I'm done with my own desires, I'm done with sin, I'm, done. I'm following after Christ, I'm trying to take on His shape. And so he says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So if you've taken on the way of the cross... It doesn't mean you'll never sin again, but you're, you're done with that. You're trying to go in a different direction. And he says, as a result, they do not spend the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You spent enough time going after your own advantage and your own will. Now you're on a different path. And if you look and you're on a path that is leading you towards comfort and self, and those sorts of things, he says, and you're on the wrong path. Take a look, and as Christians following Christ, who've laid our lives down and want to take the shape of our container, it's so easy to slip over to that other path again. Yeah. And start going towards comfort and self-sacrifice, uh, self-exaltation, and just, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. But he says, which path are you on? He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's the shape of our container. So how do we put it into practice? A couple of simple questions, four simple questions. Number one, what does it mean to no longer live for myself? I think each one of us have to ask that question. What does it mean for me? It'll mean it different for you, for you, for you. It'll look different. Number two, how can I be willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others? Now, what I mean by this, you ever been in a place in your life where you're like, I don't want to do that, but I want to want to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. People are like, I want to have like a beach body. <laughs> I want to work out. I don't want to do it, but I want to want it. Yeah. Right? So what do you need to do to be, get to a place where you're willing to sacrifice? And then number three, how can I prepare? There's a difference between being willing and preparing. Right? Some people are like, oh, I want to be generous. I want to give to others. But I'm also massively in debt. And I have a house that's a little too big. And I have a car that's a little too expensive. And so I can't really help people when they need it. So... And other people are like, man, I live in such a way I prepare so that when needs come up, I'm ready. I live below my means. I, you know, th those sorts of things. How can I prepare? And sometimes it's just little ways. People be like, oh, I'd help somebody in need, but every time they ask, I'm busy. I can't do it. I can't, you know, I have a schedule. Well, then you're not prepared. Maybe you're willing, but you've not prepared. You haven't gotten to a place where you can drop things and go help others. And then finally, do I look for opportunities? I, this is, my wife helped me to see this years ago, and I still have to work at this, but I used to come in, in essence, to gatherings of the body like this, all right? What does it mean to no longer live for myself? All right. 
willing to sacrifice. Yeah, I, I think I'm willing. I'm prepared to do it. All right, Sunday morning comes. How you doing? Good to see you, brother, sister. Amen. All right, get home. Saw no needs today. I guess we'll, you know, saddle it back up next week and see what happens. My wife has taught me to look for opportunities in our lives, to go to work, to go to school, to look around the neighborhood, to go into the body and say, let me find ways to sacrifice. Not just if you come to me and ask, I go, okay, and then I'll make sure you know how much I sacrifice for you. But to look for opportunities. What does it mean? Am I willing? Am I prepared? And do I look to be liquid to the shape of my container. Thank you guys so much. It's been a real honor to be here.